We're going to open up the Word of God this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13 this morning. Those of you that were with us for the last two and a half years, you know that we came out of the study, we went verse by verse through the book of Matthew. And then coming out of Matthew, we thought it would be kind of cool to take a few weeks and just spend some time kind of catching us up on what happens after the Gospel of Matthew finishes. And in the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a couple other stories that are highlighted at the very end of Jesus' life after his resurrection that you don't find in the book of Matthew. And so um, last week we talked about the restoration of Peter as found in the book of John. Uh, This week we're actually going to talk about the story on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And then next week uh, we're going to jump into the book of Acts for several weeks. And we're going to kind of talk through the the infancy of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit, how the church got its start. Uh, And that'll lead us into uh, spending about five weeks in the Psalms uh, in the month of July. And then in the month of August we'll come back and we'll actually do a little more detailed study on the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit, what how the Holy Spirit is functioning today in the church and in our personal lives and in this world. So find ourselves in Luke 24 this morning. Let me pray and um, we'll dig in. Jesus, we thank you for this time. God, I thank you for this passage and I just pray, God, that we would get from it what it is you intend for us to get from it. God, I pray for each of us this morning that our hearts would really be laid open before you this morning. Jesus, I pray that you'd use your word to speak to the condition of our hearts, but I pray for your encouragement. I pray for just a fresh wind of your Holy Spirit in this place, Jesus, that you would do this amazing work of renewing hearts and renewing minds, drawing people to you this morning, Jesus. And so we give you this time, God, and we just acknowledge you as Lord and Savior, our Master, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We love you, Jesus, and we Give this time to you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Luke 24, um, let's read verses 13 through 36. I know there's a lot that we're going to read here this morning, Uh, but I'll read 13 through 36, and then we'll kind of jump in, and um, we'll talk through the other portions all the way through verse 53 by the time we end this morning, which should be, we'll have you out of here by one o'clock, cool? Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Mind you, this is after the resurrection, right? Jesus is resurrected, he's gone, nobody's seen him. Uh, there's been a couple, that this, a couple of the disciples have had these like experiences with him where he shows up and Here it is again, all these things have happened, and and while they're talking and they're discussing these things together about everything that's taken place, Jesus' death and his resurrection, it says that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? So this is Jesus shows up and he, he says this to them. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> Such an interesting question. No, tell me, <laughs> you know. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us? On the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the, in the breaking of the bread. Um, I, I was thinking recently about the fact that. Um, in our culture, like we, we have these yearly celebrations where we acknowledge aspects of Jesus' life. Like one of the things we're gonna see as we get to the end of this passage is Jesus' ascension, like he leaves. And, and, and you realize like we have these moments in our culture where we celebrate various aspects of Jesus' life, right? We celebrate Jesus' incarnation, like a, a fancy church words that, that means basically that God came to be with us in the flesh in the person of Jesus. And we talk about, even in the Advent season, in the Christmas season, about his name, like his name being Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we've got both the Advent season, we've got this Christmas season that commemorate this. And then a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. And um, at the Easter celebration, we commemorate what? We commemorate the power of the cross, the fact that Jesus took upon himself all of our sin and our brokenness, that Jesus rose again, that he defeated death and sin once or for all, that, that we would actually find forgiveness and salvation in him. And so we commemorate that once a year with this Holy Week and, and with Easter. But what's interesting is that you get to the ascension, and oftentimes the ascension is just kind of blown by, isn't it? We don't really have like a culture-wide celebration to celebrate the ascension of Jesus. You, you have uh, on the Christian church calendar, you've got this, thir- this day of ascension, um, the ascension day, which is 40 days after Easter, which will happen in a couple weeks, but we don't do much to actually celebrate this day. And I bet most of us like didn't even know that there was a day allotted in the Christian calendar for his ascension. And honestly, it can be really easy to overlook Jesus' ascension as followers of Jesus, and yet it's a major part of the story. I mean, as we get into the next few weeks, this is, this is kind of the, the precipice of it all, right? As Jesus resurrects and then he ascends, 
and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and then he says that he's gonna send his helper, that another one is gonna come by fire, right? He's gonna send his Holy Spirit to us, and so the ascension is a big part, a big part of, this, uh, of Jesus' story. But I think there's many reasons why we don't actually talk about this or why it gets kind of overlooked. One, I think, is the, the incarnation in and of itself, like Jesus, God himself becoming flesh in Jesus. Because Jesus coming at, at, the, at the advent and, and then Christmas's powerful story, like that we'd rally around every year, that, that God himself came in the flesh in the form of a baby. But it, this message communicates to us God's nearness, right? That God came to us. He cared enough about his people that he sent his son to draw near to us. That God himself and his love can actually be known to mankind. I mean, that's a large part of the story. But we also know in that story that, that, that God knows our pain, that, that God knows our struggles. He knows what it's like to be human. And so that, that, that story is told every single year because we find so much significance in it. The other part of it is through the, the cross and the resurrection, we have this amazing demonstration of God's love and his forgiveness. And this shows us that salvation is now possible. And so we make a big deal out of these two things. But the ascension, however, that, that we'll get to at the end of this passage, is this moment where Jesus suddenly disappears, like he's gone. He came to us and he was with us and he was love and he, he laid down his life for us to grant us this gift of salvation. But the ascension is essentially Jesus disappearing, right? Where unlike his incarnation, unlike Jesus' resurrection, we're actually kind of reminded of this like unfamiliarity of God, right? That, that, that he, he's gone, like that he's not necessarily with us in person. And so we know what it's like to be human, and, and so the incarnation, like God becoming flesh, says like God actually knows what it's like to be human as well. We relate in that, like there's something amazing about that. And so we know what it's like to actually face the reality of death. Those of you in this room have literally looked death, some of you have looked death in the face, or you've watched people die before you. And so his death and resurrection say God actually knows death as well. Like, he can relate to us in that. And, and the good news is that Jesus has actually made a way through this for us. But in thinking about this ascension, I don't really know if as humans we have a category for this, to actually understand what this actually means, how we can actually relate to it, how we can understand it. We don't know what it's like to ascend and be seated at the right hand of the throne of, the throne of God the Father, do we? It's kind of baffling. Like, try to make sense of that. Like, what does it mean for, for God to be this powerful being that, that's somehow in control of the whole universe, and yet we still wrestle with, like, dark and light and, and beauty and pain and joy and, and the agony of life, and we don't necessarily understand what it would be like to carry the power and the authority that God actually has. And so from our perspective, there's so much in our world that's like outside of our control, right? And if I'm being honest, I think there are times when we despise sort of any sense of God's absence. Like for us, it's like he just peaced out. Like where is God in the midst of this? Like in a really weird way, it's almost like we can hold Jesus' ascension against him 
Because in our minds, he isn't here in the way that we really hoped that he would be here for us. Or he isn't here in the way that we really wanted him to be here for us. And what's interesting is that this sort of unfamiliarity of God that we talked about is this reality that we see when Jesus is no longer with his disciples. Like, imagine what the disciples went through in the season. They've walked with him. They've learned from him. Like, they've drawn near to him. They were like a, a place of comfort for them. And he's no longer there anymore to answer any of their questions. He's no longer there to show them the way. He's no longer there to say to them, like, why don't you throw your nets on the other side when you've come up empty? Like, Jesus just isn't there to do that. Heather and I often have these discussions about how strange it is to get older in life. Because in getting older, what you realize is that the people that you depended on, that you looked to for wisdom to help give you clarity, your parents, mentors in your life, as they pass away, you start realizing, like, who do I call? Who do I go to to get advice and support? Like, where I'm left to try to figure this out on my own, and it's such an interesting season to watch people transition through that stage of life. Who's there? And the disciples are asking these questions. Like, where did he go? What's he expect us to do now? He's gone. He was with us, and now he's gone. And I think it was similar, again, for the disciples, like it is for us, as we grieve the loss of people that we looked to for support and encouragement and wisdom on this earth, for the disciples to now find themselves in a place where they didn't have that anymore and wondered how in the world they would get it and felt probably a little bit abandoned by God himself. But this ascension of Jesus, it's like a major part of the story. It's just as important as Christmas. It's just as important as Easter, um, both for the joy and the power, because it actually reminds us that the, the victory Christ has won means that he's now ascended basically to the control room of the universe. As Joey always says, who's in control? God's in control. That he's basically ascended to a place of power, that he is the one that has all authority, that he's on the throne of heaven. And so it's also important because of this mystery that there is and this reminder that we are definitely not in control. If anything, this life sometimes feels out of control. There's things that we just don't understand. There's timing that we wouldn't necessarily choose for our lives. And so on this particular day in the scriptures, things changed for these first disciples of Jesus. And I think it's good that we consider the implications for them and for you and I, that they're not simply following Jesus's physical body around anymore. And at the moment of the ascension, they start having to live life off the words that they heard come from Jesus' mouth, not actually walking right behind him and watching him model it for them. They're following his teachings. They're following the life that Jesus had actually modeled for them. They're literally living off of what he taught them, and soon they're going to be filled with this Holy Spirit, which will become their comforter and their counselor and their guidance moving forward. And so we'll get to that in a few weeks as we talk about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And what's interesting is that now the disciples are going to begin to live similarly to how we do, which is in Jesus' name. We live in Jesus' name. And if you follow the rest of the story in the New Testament, 
there are many powerful things that happen, and they happen in Jesus' name. Like, in Jesus' name, healing happens. Like, there's powerful moments of, like, forgiveness and freedom and salvation. People are baptized in Jesus' name. Prayers are answered in Jesus' name. Like, radical generosity is displayed in Jesus' name. And I'm sure many of you guys in this room have had really powerful experiences in your life similarly. And experiences in your life that were in Jesus' name. I was thinking some of some of these experiences in my own life this past week. Things that have literally happened in my own story in Jesus' name. And I know you have your own list. But I've had seasons of my life where there's been like intense anxiety that has subsided because I prayed in Jesus' name. I've literally watched people be healed, like in my family, outside of my family, in Jesus' name. I've watched what should have been like disastrous situations miraculously be corrected in Jesus' name. One time I was at this skateboard event, and um, we used to set up a ramp, and we'd line up like 16 kids laying down underneath the ramp, and the, the guys on our team would jump over 16 kids. It was just like terrifying for everybody watching, right? And there was probably 600 teenagers standing around while we're doing this event, and I'm on the microphone, like, emceeing it, and one of our guys gets out there to go jump over all of these kids, and he literally jumps into the air and knows that he's not going to land it, and so he kicks his board out of the way, which was normal, but when he lands on the ground, he literally, his knee comes out of socket in front of 600 kids, and I'm like, oh, dang, you know, I'm on the microphone, like, how do you recover this one? And, uh, and so I run over there, hand the mic to somebody else, I run over there and grab the kid, the, the guy on our team, that his knee is like out of socket. And this is, this is just like God. But I literally, like, he's standing there, knee out of socket, and kind of jokingly and sarcastically, I just go, in Jesus' name be healed. And the thing just goes pop like right back in. I'm not even lying. And he goes, he goes, what the heck? And he gets back out there and he skates the rest of this demo that we did. Like it was unbelievable. And, and so like there, there have been moments in my life where I've, I've literally watched. Like that was sort of God saying like, you're going to joke, but in my name, these things are possible, right? And so like I, I, I've seen those things in my own life. But there's also been seasons of my life where I've literally sat with people on their deathbed. And I've cried out, in Jesus' name, let them be healed. And days later, watch them pass away. Where I've prayed for things to be fixed that haven't necessarily been fixed. And I've prayed in Jesus' name. And many of you in this room know what it's like to pray for a miracle in Jesus' name and then not have this miracle come true. Like part of my life and work has been communicating in front of masses of people and just like sharing the gospel of Jesus and inviting people to come forward. I've seen, I've been to events where I've literally like, we've prayed in Jesus' name, like if anybody wants to come forward and receive Jesus and nobody responds. <laughs> and then there's been times where you're like, we were at this NASCAR event one time and it, there, it was just like spring break for middle-aged adults. It was complete debauchery all around us. And and like, and I just like, there's people walking around with beers in their hand, they're drunk, and they're like, yeah, 
yeah, like they're loving the skateboarding. And we get to this part and I start to pray and we share the gospel and we're like, if anybody wants to receive Jesus, like come forward. And we literally watched people with beer in hand, I'm not, I'm not lying, walk towards the altar and start throwing them in the trash can and come forward, surrendering their lives to Jesus. So I say all this to say, like, there's been times where I've prayed in Jesus' name and I've seen what I wanted to happen, what I hoped to happen, happen. There's been times where I've prayed in Jesus' name and I haven't seen what I hoped to happen, happen, but it doesn't mean that God isn't still in control and on the throne. But in this story, what I know is that there is power in his name, right? If you read the New Testament, it's littered with these stories. Like, many of you have stories that also support this, and you've known the power of Jesus' name, but there's also times when you wish Jesus would stay close, and then it just seems like he ups and vanishes. (laughs) But you and I, we need the ascension. Like, we actually need this story because it actually helps us have this appropriate understanding for, like, our emotional ups and downs as a human and how that relates to God. Like, who really is at work? Who really does do the rescuing? Who really does do the forgiving? Who really does actually save? but doesn't always do things like we would understand or maybe like we would choose. And so it's good for us in life to kind of grapple with the beauty and the power of God. It's also really good for us to wrestle with the mystery and the challenge of the ascension. Like, what does it mean for us? How's, how's this pan out? So listen to how Luke mentions this in Luke 24, 36 to 43. He says, as they're talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, and it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? <laughs> And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. So what is it we can learn from this? Like, one, Jesus isn't a ghost, right? And two, like, Jesus loves fish. So write those down. Um, But Luke, why does Luke include these weird details in this passage? Like, what is it that Luke is actually trying to show us? And I think Luke is trying to show us what type of resurrection this is that Jesus is experiencing. I think that there's several reasons why this is really important to us, but I think that he's trying to show that, like, what type of resurrection this is, because if Jesus was the firstborn among the dead, like the scriptures say, then actually he's beginning this new creation. Jesus is starting it over, and and the idea of this new creation begins with the resurrection of Jesus. Like, this is the starting point. So what type of resurrection would it be if it's a resurrection that you and I actually get to share in with him? First of all, Jesus isn't some disembodied spirit, right? He's saying he's not just some ghost. And it's actually really important for us to understand that, that Jesus isn't just a ghost. He's going to send a ghost, right? But he's not a ghost. Like, that's the weird part of this Christian story. He's not a ghost, but he'll send a ghost, right? But he will literally send a spirit that fills us with the spirit of Christ. 
that makes it possible. Like all the things that Jesus talked about are made possible through his spirit. And so when Jesus resurrects from the dead, again, he's not just some spirit. He's not just some ghost. And apparently that's a really important detail for Luke. And I think it actually should be a pretty important detail for us that Jesus still has these distinguishing marks of his life before them, doesn't he? His hands and his feet. Like there's marks of humanity still on him. He literally still bears the marks of his own death. And in this instance, what does Jesus do? Eats fish. (laughs) Like how crazy. N.T. Wright, who's this like renowned New Testament theologian, says this. He says, People often think that resurrection simply means life after death or going to heaven. But in the Jewish world of the first century, it meant a new embodied life in God's new world. A life after life after death, if you'd like. But the new body which will be given at the end is not identical to the previous one. In an act of new creation parallel only to the original creation itself, God will make a new type of material no longer subject to death out of the old one. In Jesus' case, of course, this happened right away without his original body decaying so that the new body was actually the transformation of the old one. For the rest of us whose bodies will decay and whose bones may well be burnt, it will take a complete act of new creation, the new body, and this is the point. We will belong in both the dimensions of God's world in both heaven and on earth. So what type of resurrection are we talking about? N.T. Wright has spent a ton of his career trying to help sort of correct this misinterpreted concept that Christians have about our future hope, right? We're not looking to be just kind of whisked away, taken away like uh, to, to this kind of happy spirit world that's our final hope. Like that's not the Christian hope of resurrection, that, that we would just kind of be taken away into this eternal choir practice on a cloud, right? As some sort of like disembodied spirit. But we're actually going to be a resurrected body. Like that, that, that body is going to be able to be hugged, like it can eat meals. Like the earth is going to be transformed so that what Jesus taught his disciples to pray will ultimately be answered as our final hope, right? That the kingdom would come as on earth as it is in heaven, that it would happen. Like the earth will be totally transformed. And so Luke sort of includes these details that Jesus is not a ghost, that he's able to share this meal because he's trying to show us what type of resurrection he had. That the victory was actually won in Jesus through his resurrection. And it's interesting that with the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, they cover the beginning of his life, and then they sort of skip these huge sections of his life. Like you get a spattering of Jesus' life in the middle, and then all of them sort of slow down towards the end. And, and, and they sort of spend time like sinking into the final week of Jesus' life. And so they put a ton of attention on that week. Like why do you think that there's so much emphasis put on this week of Jesus' life? And it's because of the implications of his cross, right? His death, his resurrection. This is what Luke says it's all about. He goes on in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed 
in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in, in just a, a few short passages, you sort of begin to see like the scope of this victory that Jesus has won through the cross and through his resurrection. And so I want to list just a handful of things that kind of define like the width and the depth of this victory that Jesus wins. One is that this is the victory that's connected all the way back to the beginning, right? Jesus mentioned that, that what was said in the Torah, what was said in, uh, through the prophets in the law, that all these things are pointing to something, that this has actually been part of God's heart, part of God's plan from the very beginning, that whatever victory Jesus has won, it's actually connected all the way back to what God has been wanting to do, planning to do, hoping to do, and doing since the very beginning of creation. And then especially since the fall, right? It's this victory that's connected all the way back. Jesus is like... This is all part of the story. Like, I'm the fulfillment of it all. Second, the interesting thing is not just like some triumphant victory where he just wins. It's actually a victory that includes a ton of suffering and death. Like, it's this victory that's willing to to look honestly at the condition of our world, right? It's this victory that's willing to face all the intricacies of the light and the dark and joy and agony in our life that, that His victory doesn't require us to just come to Jesus with a smile and pretend like everything is okay. His cross means that God knows what it meant to suffer all the way to to the point of death, that he can relate to us. Third, it's this victory of forgiveness. Like what kind of world, honestly, would we live in where there wouldn't be an opportunity to, grant, to have forgiveness relationally amongst one another. What kind of world would this be? That Jesus came not only to forgive us of our sins, but to grant us the opportunity to have reconciliation and forgiveness amongst one another. What an amazing thing. Imagine this world without forgiveness. Just imagine it right now. How heinous does that sound? How heinous is it? But this victory included forgiveness. It's also a victory that you and I, we get to share in. It's not just the victory for those who stick to the path and do all the right things. It's this victory that actually propels us forward in grace, through grace. And so whether you're the thief on the cross and you have nothing to show except desperation, or you're like Mother Teresa who pours out her heart to the poorest of the poor in Kolkata for her entire life, that all of us, no matter where we're at, no matter how we come to Jesus, that we get to share in this victory. So it's open to us because of the account of who Jesus is and what he did, no matter what your background. And the last thing is it's a victory full of God's spirit. Like when you think of the scope of the victory of Jesus, it's staggering, right? I was reading this thing this week that was talking about, like if you go back in the garden of, to the Garden of Eden story uh, in, in Genesis, that, that God had given um, human beings this amazing privilege and this calling, right? To have dominion is what he, what he gave us, gave Adam and Eve. And so this word in our day, like it, we would chalk it up to meaning like God has given authority. When we say God granted dominion, he gave them authority. And, and this is also a word that's like, been horrendously taken advantage of in the church today. 
this word dominion and this word authority. But in Genesis, it says that human beings made in God's image were actually meant to have dominion, to have authority, rule. They were, they were actually meant to steward and to take care of the, the resources of the world in a way that produced good things. This is what God intended for it to happen. And so God had given Adam and Eve this role to play. So we use this word, this English word steward, to describe the role that they were playing. But the Hebrew word is this word shomer. And to be a shomer is to be this legal guardian of a sacred duty, like a sacred duty to care for, to cultivate what you've been entrusted with, to make the most of this thing that God has given you. And so God says, be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to be a shomer of the world is actually to care for the world, to represent God in the world, to take the natural resources given to us by God, time, soil, gardens, music, like whatever it is, to steward it for his purposes in the world. And there's this one author, a guy by the name of Mark Sayers, that, that tells this story of old rabbis. And he, he talks about how these old rabbis would get together and they'd debate what Shomer should do in the specific situation. And so um, he says that, you know, one rabbi had been entrusted with this basket of apples. And so he, he's supposed to take this basket of apples and care for it as a steward, as a shomer, to cultivate it, to nurture it, to make sure that good comes from it. And so these apples start to go really bad, right? They start to rot. And, and, and so when this friend returns to see these apples that he'd given to his buddy, they're starting to rot. And so these rabbis begin to debate, what should we do with these apples? Like, they're going to rot, and so they go back, they consult the scriptures, they sort of toil with one, another, with one another in this conversation, and then after a ton of debate and consulting the scriptures, the rabbis decide that they're going to turn the apples into applesauce. And that's the way they're going to steward these apples, even in their state. Instead of letting them rot, we're going to do something with them. Like, this is a really small example, but in it, we can actually see our larger calling as representatives of God that are entrusted with this stewardship, with this responsibility, entrusted with dominion, entrusted as these guardians, as stewards, that the, the authority was all lost in the fall. When sin entered the world, it was gone. The dominion was gone. That's what happened. And, and it's one of the bummers in the garden that man stumbled and gave away his authority that God had given him. And a huge part of the victory that we see in Jesus is that He's recovered the Shomer, that he's given it back to us so that, as the scripture says, in his name, we begin to care for the world. We begin to care for people in the world, that we're not the ones put over it and in authority of it, but we're entrusted to go out into the middle of it because his authority granted to us is what we've been given to steward these things in the world. Like, we're, we're a people that get our hands dirty, right? Like, there's times when our hearts ache and we bleed and we lift up prayers and we pour out sweat and we take care of one another. And that's why Jesus keeps mentioning authority when this same moment happens in Matthew 28 that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And he's giving his disciples their instructions and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. And here's the deal is that only the one who's recovered our authority could actually give it back to us 
and say, this is how you're supposed to go. This is how you're supposed to move in the world. This is what it looks like to be a representative of God, full of his love, full of his victory that actually brings forgiveness, that brings mercy, that takes into account like real suffering in the world, and it's ready to move into those places and not run away from it. That's light penetrating the dark. And this is our high calling as a church. Our calling is to show what God's character and love looks like in the world. In Ephesians, Paul writes this letter um, to the church of Ephesus, and in it, he writes this prayer to them. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23, he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's Jesus. This is the Jesus of your and I's salvation. And so you see him ascending to the throne room of heaven. It says in verse 15, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and he was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so here's where I want to end this morning. Is I want us as a church to think about what it means to actually live in his name. What does that mean? In his departure and now in us having his Holy Spirit for us to live in this world as these stewards of God in the world that he's placed us. What does it look like for us to live in his name? And as we go back and we look at what Jesus says before he, he ascends, like, do we understand the power that comes along with this? That Jesus gives them this really simple explanation uh, uh, of this message that his life preached. And in moments in life for us where we lack clarity and, and we wax and wane in our relationship with Jesus and we doubt and we fear, may we come back to the power in his name. May we come back to his word and what he says of himself, that he fulfilled all that was written in the law and spoken through the prophets, that he would suffer, die, and on the third day that he would raise again, that through this act, God would grant us forgiveness of our sins through our repentance, through us believing in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and that this message should be proclaimed to the world is what he says. But the world needs to hear it. They need to hear it. In Jesus' name, they need to hear it. And so for us on the other side of Pentecost, right, like understand that the disciples don't even know what's in store for them over the coming weeks. But for us on the other side of Pentecost, as Jesus speaks of the promise of his spirit to be given, we know that that's ours to partake in, that he's with us, that he does dwell with us. And that's where we're going to head in the weeks to come. But as I wrap up this morning, my reminder to us is, like, one, do you understand the, the 
power and the authority that's been granted to you through the work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Do we get that? Because to be radically honest with you, I sometimes think we back ourselves out of the power in Jesus' name because Jesus hasn't done the things that we wanted him to do in the way we wanted him to do it, in the time we wanted him to do it. So I just won't pray anymore. But when you pray in Jesus' name, one, you believe he can do it, but two, you acknowledge that he knows what's better than you. That he's the one with the authority and the power. You're just the steward of it. (laughs) But the world needs us to steward his power and authority in a way that points the world back to him, to proclaim this good news to the world that he's talking about here. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And um, we have a couple people that are going to get baptized this morning. And what an amazing proclamation these people get to make this morning is what they're saying to you guys is, I've profess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe that he lived, he died, that he rose again, that he's granted me forgiveness in his name, that his spirit resides within me, and I choose to be a follower of Jesus and live in this world under the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to baptize a couple of people this morning, but if you're here this morning and maybe this message is news to you, um, You're like, I didn't know what it meant to follow Jesus. I've always just thought it meant like going to church and checking off the boxes and praying and making sure I'm around Christian people all the time and just doing the right things in my life. I want to tell you this morning, none of that stuff is what grants you access to heaven in this relationship to Jesus. It's your admittance that you're far off and you need somebody to save you. You need somebody to save you. And that Jesus is that one. And if you're here this morning and you've never called upon the name of Jesus to save you, you can do that this morning. The Bible says it's very easy. You profess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. And if you're here this morning and you want to do that, I just encourage you to pray that prayer. If you're here this morning and you've never been baptized and you're feeling like the Spirit's leading you this morning to make that proclamation, to stand before the church and say, I'm making him King of kings and Lord of lords in my life. I believe that in my forgiveness being granted by Jesus, that I literally went down in the waters of baptism, that I was cleansed and forgiven. And I came up this resurrected life that Jesus has offered me through the power, his resurrection power that he received on the cross. If you're here this morning and you'd like to be baptized, I just encourage you, go to our connect table over there. Somebody would love to get you a shirt. If you want to change, go change, come back in. And we'll do baptisms in a second. But if you guys would stand with us, we're going to spend some time before we do baptisms just singing, just worshiping. And as we worship, my encouragement to you, again, will be, this isn't a box you check. This isn't Christian karaoke. This is literally us singing to the Most High God, acknowledging his power and authority, that he is the King of Kings, that he is our Savior and our Master. You have the opportunity to worship him, to express that with your voice, with your heart this morning, express that to him. And so let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the work that only your spirit can do in us and through us. I thank you for the gift of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. I thank you for the power and the authority that you've granted us by way 
of your spirit. And I pray as a church that we wouldn't disregard that. I pray as a church we'd acknowledge that your spirit resides within us and we get to walk in that, Jesus. And so I pray, Jesus, that we'd also be a church that would be first to pray for, to stand with those in some of the most hurting, desperate situations and believe that in the power of Jesus' name they too can be healed, that they can find peace with you, Jesus, that their hearts can be at ease, And I pray that we'd be a church that would just proclaim and proclaim and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the city of Coeur d'Alene to the end of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift that you granted us. In your name we pray. Amen.